All right, everyone. Maybe I'd like to get started now. I hope you all have a glass of wine in your hands. Right. Not too many glasses of wine, it seems. Right. So it's a very pleasure to have Lord May give the keynote speech uh, today. You have the details there. You have the tweet address, whatever it's called, here if you want to tweet about it and ask questions. I will share the session. It's a, it's a true honor to have uh, Bob May here. Uh, who is he? He is a professor at Oxford and Imperial College. He was the past president of the Royal Society. He was the UK chief uh, scientific advisor to the government. And he's currently a member of the Economic Affairs Committee in the House of Lords. And most importantly, of course, he's a chairman of my Systemic Risk Center here at the LSE. Bob. Now I have, I have to remember how this works. Um, here we are. Good. I'm going to talk, um, the talk's roughly divided into three bits. The first bit I'm going to talk partly about how I got uh, started um, developing interests, branching out of my earlier life, which started as a chemical engineer, as an undergraduate, ended up with a PhD in theoretical physics, spent a few years at Harvard in the Division of Engineering and Applied Physics, went back to Sydney as a physicist, went to Princeton as a biologist, and now I seem to be transmogrified to a certain extent into um, a finance person. And I'm going to say a little bit about that and some of the parallels um, with systems in ecology. Then, secondly, I'm going to talk about applying some of the things one has done in ecological systems uh, to get some insights into the dynamics of model financial systems. And the third section, I will focus on some of the regulatory implications of all of this. I'll try to point this out. I'll point that out. Yeah, I've got various uh, thanks to people that I will touch on as I go along, but first and most really heartfelt and important um, is to George Sugihara. If it hadn't been for George, I wouldn't be here at the moment um, talking to you. But George got involved in an interesting study. In 2006, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, in a very prescient way, long before anything happened, observed that the increasingly elaborate financial instruments that were being invented, all with a focus on individual institutions or just sometimes individuals uh, maximizing profit with minimum risk, nobody was thinking about possible implications for the system as a whole. And the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York put together a study group to look into this issue, and in doing so, they looked for people who might bring read across from other disciplines, infectious diseases, propagation of infectious diseases, um, ecosystems, and George was a natural, George having been, spent five or six years managing Deutsche Bank Securities USA before going back to 
fisheries, uh, complex multi-species fisheries, George was a good person to get involved. Uh, George uh, got me involved, and indeed we wrote a little paper about it, um, published in Nature, which Gillian Tett, who many of you will be familiar with as uh, the from Financial Times, uh, Gillian Tett wrote a nice essay about it called The Birds and the Bees and the Big Banks. But uh, she wrote that after a few years after we actually published the paper because the paper was also published before everything sort of went belly up. One of the things George did while he was on this committee, and I was not involved much in the committee as such, was uh, ask, well, how are the banks in the, U in the USA connected up? And, and that prompted a study, and this is a diagrammatic, very impressionistic uh, result of the study, which was built on monitoring some, if my memory is right, the first digit seven, but I forget whether it was 70,000 or 700,000 um, email transfers of cash, the way we send, uh, send money to our daughter in America. Um, and it involved this network some nine and a half thousand banks uh, it's very interestingly biased to a few big banks 65% of the banks account for much more than half, 65% of the transactions if my memory is correct however just simply knowing what the system is and who is uh, how many banks each how many connections each bank has is really not enough to say anything much about the uh, distribution the, one of the first caveats is you really need to know not just the degree distribution how many banks are connected to a large number how many to a small number you need to know the full structure of who interacts with whom and more important even than that you need to know whether the very active bank... If you go back to what prompted this as a publication with Shanetra Gupta and Roy Anderson in, to do, do with the early days of uh, HIV-AIDS on the West Coast in the United States, um, you need to know... It's one thing to know how many people have a lot of partners and how many people have few partners, but what is really important for the transmission of... Of, uh, of that infection is do the very active people differentially mix with other very active people or are they uh, as it were predatory on uh, single people in large numbers um, or just in short are the interactions associative in which as it were shy people associate with shy people and very active people with very active people are they at the opposite extreme disassociative in that the very active people mainly interact with not very active people or are they just simply proportionate to the number of people that you do interact with and the answer is quite consequential as you can see from that if they are the way to maximise the spread of infection is to have disassociative Connections. Associative connections rise faster, but before there were drugs against uh, uh, dying of AIDS, they tended to end up with a smaller completed epidemic. And rather distressingly, it turned out, by and large, the things were more disassociative. That's some, just some sense of the unexpected and, but interesting complexities 
around this few years earlier too, before all this, the thing that turned me into a, an ecologist and epidemiologist at Princeton, um, I had uh, got interested in ecology. This was the late 60s, long ago. Half the audience probably weren't born then. But it was a time when uh, consciousness was raised in various directions and in Australia uh, a society for social responsibility in science was formed led by the co-author of what was internationally the top-selling ecology text, Charles Birch. And I was drawn into that, and I thought I should really learn what I'm being socially responsible about. And I started reading in ecology books, and I came across, and remember, this is an interesting time. Ecology is a young subject. The word itself is not much more than a century old. And the world's oldest ecological society, with which we're co-celebrating this meeting, celebrated its centenary last year. Um, so, but it was a its early days, very sensibly, were just describing things. But round the 60s, there was a rising movement of trying to get a better grip on fundamental questions. Of, and one of the tentative things that was put forward... Uh, by Evelyn Hutchinson, a really major figure in ecology, Brit who was based at Yale and had many of his students who are major figures in the, the discipline now, but his most notable student was a chap called Robert MacArthur at Princeton. Um, but they had come to the conclusion, mistaking basically uh, some of them, the, it was an elaboration of an idea due to Elton, who got mentioned earlier today, namely that complicated ecological systems with lots of species and lots of interactions were by virtue of the complexity more robust to disturbance. And I, one of the books I read was a book by Ken Watt called Ecology and Resource Management, and he set out this conventional wisdom, and then he said he found it unconvincing because his experience, and I felt, as I read it, I thought, like my experience is, the more complicated something is, the more things go wrong. And so I, that evening, after reading it, I decided I would look at something just as a toy model. It's the sort of thing I like doing. And I said, suppose I have a community of N species, N banks, N species, each one of which in this ecosystem, if isolated with no interactions with the others, had intraspecific mechanisms that if it was impacted, if... You know, it moved away from its average equilibrium point, would return. If it became extra abundant, it would tend to fall back. If it became low birth rates and shrank, it would tend to bounce back. Suppose, in short, I had a matrix of these species with minus one down the diagonal. To say each of these species would recover from disturbance in unit time and zeros everywhere else. And then I sprinkled in interactions at random, plus or minus. So plus, plus would be cooperative, minus, minus competing, and twice as probable at random, plus, minus would be predator-prey. And each of these interactions, each species would have on average M of these interactions, and they would be of strength alpha. And I proved an interesting uh, extension of a theorem actually arising in particle physics by Gene Wigner 
which uh, said, uh, which asked questions about what would be the stability of the thing, and he, he proved it for anti-symmetric matrices. Um, but in, what I was able to show was that if the number of species n was very big, then the number of, if the number of species times the average connectance, that is to say if the total number of connections per species, which was little m over n, times the square on the average strength exceeded unity, the normalisation time for recovering, then the system would tend to collapse. That's I have great delight. In fact, I'm sure I've got it on in one of the, tra one of the PowerPoints. This is now called the May-Vigner theory. I really like that. Um, this, what this said is you know, real systems, real ecosystems are not randomly assembled. But what it did do is essentially redefine the agenda of research in this area, which is still continuing, because what you've got to ask is, in, a in an ecosystem, there is a pressure towards getting more species and more complexity as more niches arise, as the thing gets more complicated and then someone will appear to fill the niche. And so you have, in effect, a trade-off between evolutionary events driving more species and thus more complexity and the instabilities these generate mitigating against it. And I think the question that we're still pursuing, but it's not a completely solved problem by any means, is how do complicated ecological systems have special non-random interaction structures within them that tend to reconcile added complexity with not being too unstable. And that, that is a quest still in progress, but there's good reason to believe it's not uh, a foolish quest because there are this very interesting paper by Jennifer Dunn at the Santa Fe Institute and Doug Irwin uh, suggesting that the Burgess Shale, the thing that... Uh, attracted so much attention, a tentative reconstruction of the communities there revealed predator-prey ratios which are very similar to most modern ecosystems, so, but this is still a work in progress. So that was the background motivation. Now I'm going to sketch some read-across uh, to ecological things. And once drawn into this uh, enterprise that uh, George was involved with, 2008... Things went pear-shaped, and uh, I first my first reaction my first reaction always and this is a very narcissistic lecture, but it'll get less so as we go on. But when I get involved, I have a very short attention span as a scientist, and I hop around a lot. But when I get into something new, I tend to try and think about what I would uh, what I think would be an interesting thing to do before I learn too much about it. And what I did in this case is I said. Uh, let me see how this theorem about too much complexity works here. The nodes are going to be banks, but the network is going to be a bit trickier because the nodes are more complicated. A node in an ecosystem is a species, and the things coming in are things that are preying on it or competing with it, and the things going out are benefits to it, and they're just very simple. They've got arrows are coming in or they're going out. 
But for banks, it seemed to me, not having learnt much about it, because I didn't want to be circumscribed by learning what I ought to think, I thought there's four sorts of things going on in nodes. There's money coming in from outside, in deposits, and money coming in from within the financial system, and there's money going out to the outside in mortgages and stuff, and there's money going out in bank loans. And then, having thought about that and done some little calculations, which I'll show you, but before I got stuck into that, I asked Nicholas Beale, one of my friends, um, whom I, don't, I think was here earlier but is gone, uh, what did he think of it? And he said, that's absolute, uh, that's just ridiculous, but here's a paper just been published by people at the Bank of England that might set you on the right tra track, and I'm delighted to say this was the model that they were using, which has, as you will see, there is a bank, there are things coming in from the outside, uh, from the inside and going out, and it must be that your assets, including the stuff you set aside for uh, in case something goes wrong, your capital reserves, your, must exceed your, um, your liabilities, must not exceed your assets balance, you see it? But if one of your assets goes to their shapes, and in particular is supposed to wipe out the entire net worth, then this bank will fail, and this bit here that wasn't covered by the capital reserves would be distributed in the first instance among the other borrowers. So that kind of shock would be attenuated in each phase, but it gave you a sense of what was going on. And I then asked, uh, what is this going to look like um, as things propagate, and this, and I go through pretty quickly, but this is a system here where I've looked at such a bank and I've asked, I've accidentally discovered um, black skulls, uh, um, not black skulls, sorry, um, the, uh, the 1933 legislation that said you can't be a high street bank and a gambling bank. Hmm? Klaus Stiegel. Klaus Stiegel, that's right. What I asked was, what proportion of the assets are in external loans versus interbank stuff? So which of, what proportion are casino and high street? And suppose the net worth is such that it experiences a shock of such magnitude that a single bank comes down. Now I'm going to ask... What's going, how big is the shock got to be for the shock that propagates from that initial shock to bring down other banks? What, how big has this shock got to be so that when that much is distributed among the number of banks there are, however many, um, they in turn will now fail? And I found that basically... Um, what you wanted, if you wanted to maximise the fragility of the system, uh, was that you wanted a sort of balance of high street and casino in, from this simple and artificial model. At this point, we had that it was now clear that there were things wrong with the banking system, and I had got to know Mervyn King before he was actually governor of the Bank of England. It was while I was chief scientific advisor, and the ESSR, the Economic Social Sciences Research Council, very wise these days, that, uh, that was uh, about to get a new director, and a committee was put together with three civil servants 
and myself as chief scientist and a token, civil, a token social scientist. And the three civil servants wanted one candidate, and I and the token social scientist wanted another candidate, and we prevailed. And I thought, this is an unusually wise and skillful social scientist, and it was Mervyn King while he was deputy governor. So at this point in this narrative, I called Mervyn and I said, uh, I've been doing some things and I have what I think are some interesting ideas. Why don't we bring George Sugihara across from the States and a couple of other of my students who are doing interesting things on networks and just have a bit of a chat and so on. And from the, we did that and from that came the things I'm going to go on and talk about and the work with Andrew Haldane and others. One of the first things uh, that I <coughs> did in elaborating this was go beyond the simplicity of the first uh, model and start looking at exactly uh, how you might do a slightly more realistic model of the uh, system with different kinds of assets. But more importantly, and this was, I got uh, the things I was doing now, I've, I've done a lot of the black, the uh, the Glass-Steagall-y thing I just did as an analytic approximation, but at this point I wanted to do some big computational things. And my PhD thesis uh, back in, way back in Sydney was the first big computation on the first mainframe in Australia. And it left me with an abiding desire, as many of my acquaintances know, to deal with computers through the medium of graduate students. <laughs> Uh, so I, I got hold of a graduate student, Nima Rinopathy, who was a very, very able person now. He was a graduate student of one of my colleagues, uh, Angela McLean, but he's now senior lecturer at Imperial College not many years later. And, I bought, and it was, it was uh, Nim really said, what we need to do is characterise... The way these things propagate is not just automatic debts being propagated, it's people getting scared. It's a lack of confidence. And he said, let's try and include that, however crudely. And his idea, and this is his idea, is to first of all characterise the confidence of the banking system, the financial system as a whole, by calculating a sort of solvency health, the ratio of the value of all the assets you hold at a point in time as a ratio to the number of initial assets or their value, and a liquidity health, which was the fraction of the interbank loans that have not been tampered with, and that's a measure, that thing C, we take that as a measure of the confidence in the banking system or in our model network banking system with a specified kind of uh, over-dispersed network. And then we do an analogous definition of the health of an individual bank and the, the analogy there of the, the sort of asset health is the value of the bank's assets against their initial value and the, the bank's liquidity health is the fraction of the loans that the bank can settle immediately either through liquidity because it's got a adequate liquidity or, short, or selling short-term assets. And then, having calculated the health of each individual bank in the model and the overall system health, if the, you've got two interacting banks, I and J, and the product of their health is less than one minus the system's whole confidence thing, then both banks should, 
turn all their long loans into short as opportunity arises. And you can see if, if the confidence is high, that'll never happen. And as the confidence gets very low, that will easily happen. And more dramatically, if they get less than 1 minus C squared, which is always going to be smaller than 1 minus C, then both banks call in all the loans. And then we model that and look and see at the sorts of things that happen. And without going into sort of endless detail, this is the sort of thing we find. Suppose we have a system of banks. This is, if my memory is right, it's a system of some 200 banks. There's little banks and big banks. All the little banks are the same size. All the big banks are 25 times bigger, and there are eight of them out of 200, which is not as bad as a statistic I've seen for the United States where... 1.6% of all US banks hold 65% of all assets. So that would have been more extreme than our 8 of uh, what, uh, 8 of, a, of, a hundred, uh, of 200 banks. Um, and now, oh, oh the, the banks, when I say the, the big banks, the 8 big banks are bigger, they have 25 times more loans going in and out and their individual asset classes are 25 times as big. And I now let one of these banks, chosen at random, could be big or could be little, much more likely to be little, and that's the blue and the, that's the, blue and the red line together, and then I say this has uh, reserves such that one bank fails as the liquidity goes down below 0.8. You've, only, you've got in reserve only 8% of your total assets, how long will it be before more banks go down? And you see, if you do this without this confidence effect, but just the mechanical thing I showed earlier, it'll, you'll have to get to very low levels of, uh, of capital reserves before another bank goes down. But once another bank goes down, it really will start to topple. Conversely, once you include these confidence effects, once the first bank goes down, it doesn't take much for the whole system to come down. And the next slide, or no, I'm going to just shuffle these slides briefly. The next slide does a big simulation of this. And what this is, this is capital reserves of the small banks, capital reserves of the big banks, and this indicates how many banks have failed if you let one bank chosen in a random go down. And the answer clearly is you need to get the quite high capital reserves among the eight bank, B banks to avoid what happens on this side if you have quite small capital reserves where the system really suffers severely. And you can see going back behind all this diagonal would be when they have the same capital reserve. Looking at it in more detail, if the index bank you choose to fail is a small, one of the small index banks, one of the uh, 92, then by and large it doesn't do much damage because the bank fails and brings out a few more. But conversely, oh, sorry, if, conversely, if you hit one of the big index banks, um, it may be only that it causes quite a fuss, and this, uh, but it will bring the whole, essentially the whole system down. 
Now I'm going to go back to the two I just skipped. Having done all this, um, we were, to try and test some of these ideas, we were both astonished at the degree to which there's very little um, things in the way of experimental data tested against this kind of thinking. But there's a chap called Shin at Princeton who really is rather keen on this sort of stuff. And he accumulated the data from Morgan Stanley, first quarter of 96 to the second quarter of 2011. And then he did a sort of analysis asking, what's the quarterly change in assets, quarter by quarter over that period? What's the quarterly change in debt equity? And he found that he had, he had corroborated the tentative opinion, which had to worry more about debt than, uh, than about uh, equity. And so we went back to our model, not having known anything about this, but taking the same model and running it to see what it would have said Morgan Stanley would have done. And it is remarkably in agreement. And uh, that we found rather reassuring. Right. Come to the last bit now. What are the implications of all of this? I want to lead this off with what I think is the most interesting single piece of data re relating to the past events that I'm aware of. What this is, Andy Haldane did it. Um, go back to 1880 and you ask, what's the ratio of all UK bank assets to GDP? It's to sort of normalise out inflation. And it trickles along with 5, 10, 20% fluctuations at 0.5% for a century, up to 1970, at which point it starts to take off. I'm amazed that there's so little attention has been given to this. I'm not aware, to I, I may say modestly, I'm not aware of anybody else who's even asked what happened around 1970 that changed things. And I can tell you that. Around 1970 is more or less around the time when I was doing my PhD, when I was doing the PhD thesis on the bloody computer, and it was just beginning to give the computational ability to handle the way people invented ways of taking the same assets, splicing them and dicing them, selling them again, taking more rent from them. I mean, nobody in their right mind thinks that the real assets in the UK banking system had increased from 0.5 to 8, but nobody was asking the question. And I think that really is a very distressingly revealing fact. On the other hand, it does... It was my wife who found this. My wife is reading uh, Robert Skidelsky's uh, biography of John Maynard Keynes. And it turns out, by pure coincidence, I knew I had a very interesting bloke sitting beside me on the economics affairs in the Lords, and very nice, and we often chatted. And I knew his name was Robert, but I didn't uh, sort of relate to his uh, second name, which is Skidelsky, until Judith showed me this... Uh, quote from page 23 of the condensed version of the three-volume thing, um, which rather summed up my own rather um, unkind view, um, which I have, I have indeed published somewhere, in which I said uh, the, to the con conventional mode of discourse in most of the economic discussions I'm familiar with 
would be more familiar to Socrates Athens than to a post-enlightenment physicist. Because people have ideas. They're clever people. They have ideas, and then they talk about the ideas, as Socrates did, as it were. And this is a more unkind way of saying the same thing. Now I'm just going to digress for a moment. This is uh, from a paper that I wrote with some other people on Joe Stiglitz, who used to be our neighbour in Princeton. Um, and it, it's weaving up to saying some things about what are the models that are, morals that arise from all this. Um, this is what these things are. Sorry. Um, that's a sort of rather unkind and uh, for people who can read quickly that's a rather unkind um, view of uh, some of the evaluation of these uh, dodgy instruments and underlying insofar as there is a theoretical justification for the way these things were priced and I'm drawing now from a very interesting paper that I'll cite explicitly on the next uh, PowerPoint. Uh, but insofar as there is a pricing mechanism for these things, it largely relies on these things from the mythological landscape. Yeah. Global equilibrium, blah, blah. And there is a very interesting paper, and uh, sitting just here, three seats back on this side, um, is Caccioli. These three people, when, they were still in Tri when he was still in Trieste, did a really beautiful paper, a deliberately simplified model um, of derivatives and looking at that in a competitive situation. And indeed, it, it's a, it's a, not only is it an elegant paper, but it's a really mathematically beautiful paper. It draws upon something even... The, the, tough, the hardest thing I ever encountered in theoretical physics was a thing called the Ising theorem. And this, is, this calculation ends up being tougher than that. But it, what it does do, it suggests that you, once you get these things more too complicated, they go belly up. So I, bring, I come to the concluding bit of all this, which is what morals emerge from it. Well, they're all fairly familiar to you, and so I won't again spend much time on that, rather leaving a bit more for questions. But these, uh, the fact that these, the, the, these things are not, so, they're just over the counter, they're not clear what they are trading for. And more than that, if you would, as this thing says, if you were to translate them, it's been estimated by vary, to, with various degrees of uh, horror, that if you estimated how much, how many pages you'd have to construct in a conventional consens uh, prospectus for many of these instruments that are being traded, um, it's sort of mind-boggling. So one of the things you could do is try to make derivatives more transparent, having, have them traded over exchanges, ensure that they're not written by government-issued entities, so that you don't allow people to get a guarantee from the government that no matter how stupid they are, they don't have to worry the taxpayer will pay for it, and 
to end the priority that they receive in bankruptcy. Then that third reform, of course, ensuring um, would reduce the hidden subsidy that is received from the public. And the second reform, B, would make information on prices, volumes and exposures available to regulators and the public. Another recommendation, this is all stuff from Andy Haldane, that, that, that comes partly from the, the stability and complexity modellings. Large capital reserves are definitely something we should look at, but more importantly, big banks should hold relatively larger capital reserves. We've seen that in the model, and we've seen that in things playing out realistically. The big banks have bitterly resisted that using the ludicrous argument that they have bigger reserves than the little banks. Well, that's not relevant. They have, by and large, in the go-up to the crash, they are having smaller reserves in relation to their capital than the little banks. And the argument there is they wanted all the money working, and when they were told and argued with, and so, so you should have bigger reserves, they said, well, our reserves are bigger than the small bank. Furthermore, the reserves tended to be run down in that boom, that euphoria, as the alleged... Uh, Oh, I've lost, the, I've lost that slide that I'm so fond of. But as that thing was going from its century-old 0.5 up to 8, um, people were running down reserves, big banks and little banks, and clearly the, the moral emerges that in boom times, banks should hold bigger capital reserves, and in bust times, they should hold... Whereas now, when the government gives them money, it costs 11% to take a mortgage and so on, and they're hoarding things because they feel better doing that. It's in fact in bust times and to get things going again they, should, they could indeed be holding small reserves. I want to end by observing a, a really couple of really good things that uh, I don't have with me for distribution, but anyone who wants to get hold of them could be in touch with me. The first one is a superb essay by Benjamin Franklin at uh, Harvard. Not Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> uh, Benjamin um, Friedman. The good Friedman. <laughs> and he wrote uh, in a couple of years ago now in the spring issue of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, they have a big conference each year, he wrote a superb essay on the financial system and one of the things he, he did, and I'm not quite sure what this means because I only know the words, uh, but he said the cost of running the US banking system, and I'm not quite sure what he meant, I think mainly salaries I suspect, the cost of running the US banking system 30 years ago was equivalent to 10% of all profits earned in America. Halfway to the present, 15 years ago, the cost was 20%, it doubled. And just before the crash, it was up to 33%. And he concludes his article by saying, the time has come to ask how much it is costing this financial system, whose basic purpose should be to allocate capital efficiently in a free market system. 
Now, I think it's a very wise and not particularly energetically acted upon recommendation. And I recommend two books I'm just going to mention in conclusion, and the last slide I'll put up. Oh, oh, sorry, I've got a couple more slides. This was just showing how leverage went went crazy. I've got my one of my. I must have turned one of my. Forgotten to turn one of my slides over. You missed a few things. (laughs) You missed some of the reorganisation of banking, but nothing really interesting because I set them all anyhow. this is a set of banks, and along here is the amount of money involved in over-leveraged things, and up here, up here is a sense of how over-leveraged they were. And the, the volume of the balloon is the magnitude of the thing. Again, coming back to things we should be... This again. So I'll leave that. Those are some references people are interested in. But the two other papers, one I've only just become aware of, it was in one of the questions that's often posed. Well, first of all, last year, for about a year, uh, we had a seminar series organised by David Vines, whom some of you will know, an economist at uh, Oxford, and uh, one of his colleagues, which was oriented to the notion of should there not be a duty of care for bankers the way there is for the medical profession or the legal profession so that when you behave really badly um, you suffer quite draconian consequences. And he's just produced, uh, this book has just been published by Oxford and I thought it was really quite an interesting uh, book but it didn't pursue the question that I kept trying to agitate for in this seminar and finally game up, which is why, as it is, didn't some of these people go to jail? And the, the head of Goldman Sachs, after all, who was aggressively marketing to clients instruments that it, they were taking a massive short position on. And you would have thought, and there's a excellent in the January issue of the New York Review of Books, which some of you will be familiar with, there was a superb article by Judge Jed Rakoff, R-A-K-O-F-F, entitled The Financial Crisis, Why No Top Executives, Why Have No Top Executives Been Prosecuted? And so I leave you on those rather unkind comments on the time series, it's uh, Andy Haldane's time series and I trust it. There are, there are, I think there are a lot of jiggles along here. And for all we, you know, if we go back far enough, there are some quite big jiggles. But this is the data that the Bank of England held on total bank assets after their income. And I, I, I find it, I don't find it in the least implausible 
because the instruments that drove that increase, in my view, you know, you now have the computers that enable you to do fancy things, and you can take a given asset, and if you're clever enough, you can multiply it more by a factor approaching eight in clever ways with the computational things at your hand. But that's not to say there weren't big... And there's a wonderful website, if anybody's interested in it, called Great Crashes or something. It goes back with uh, things. And then there were sort of hiccups, even in this, uh, since 1880, of course, the Romanian property crisis and things like that. And the black, and the black, the tulip thing was worse than that. Black South Seas was worse than that. But I, I just believe that on the ground. Maybe I'm naive, but I have tremendous faith in Andy Haldane. I think an extremely bright light. Questions? Ellen. Yeah, we started this conversation, but um, why is it that uh, banks accept um, pay huge funds and they admit that they not knowingly misbehave, uh, but they do not admit to being criminally guilty or responsible in the criminal in the law sense. So in some sense it's become like a price. So you just pay a price for your bad behavior and then get on with business. So there's no real disincentive as there is in medical practice or in the law practice. If you just know you can pay this price and then the books are clean and you go away. Well, how did that happen? Well, I don't know how that happened. Uh, but you, we were having a conversation earlier today. You will remember uh, the, the uh, economic scene in, uh, in Glasgow where the Bank of put on a special session. The main session came into the and they had been having a presentation from the head of the Bank of uh, Scotland um, who had been explaining how virtuous he was and how and the notion that uh, we should take any diminution of salary is really quite ridiculous. And you will recall that I expressed the opinion that I now express more generally. I did ask him, um, sort of, did he have no conscience, essentially, and was his greed uh, such... Uh, I was really quite rude to him. And uh, that was, that was a li- one of the liveliest sessions of the, of the meeting. Um, I, I can see how people who... The, 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 most of the people who did this probably didn't feel they were bad people. They just feel there was a bit of bad luck. They were doing something, trying to look after their clients. But it, I find it hard to believe that the major driver in this was the rent you could take from the activities you could generate that weren't available to you earlier. The, the thing that David Vines and others organised had people... Uh, who had been involved in the Lloyds thing. And there again, if, if you remember Lloyds, here's these bunch of people who get money for doing essentially nothing except lending their name, and then all of a sudden they discover that they've agreed uh, by lending their name that they're putting themselves at risk for having to pay for something that went pear-shaped. And they're very indignant and they don't want to do it. And I just find that peculiar. I guess I brought up as a Scotch Presbyterian <laughs> it, uh, it may just be um, but I think you can't rely on intrinsic virtue what we need are stricter rules than we have and better oversight than we had and certainly transparent the fact that some of these markets were so opaque 
Now, if you read I, I, one of the best essays on this that many of you must have read, Buffett's letter to his shareholders after I forget the exact date, I think it was 2002, it was. Um, he'd just taken over an insurance company that had lots of derivatives. And he took one look at them and got rid of them all. And in his letter, he was explaining to his shareholders in 2002 why he got rid of them all. And he said, he became, then I say, these are financial instruments of mass destruction. He saw all that was wrong. So the, the, the voice was there, and then somebody, furthermore, with a better track record of managing money, he But I, I think you, you had a group of people riding on that. And no regulation that uh, said if this goes bust, you're paying for it. And because in a sense it couldn't be because much of the money was high street money and, and then again it goes right back to Glass-Steagall in a sense Questions? Yes, Henry uh, Well, first I just wanted to offer a brief comment on this graph or observation which is that in 1929 the great capital crisis is in there and it, this graph doesn't seem to predict that kind of great event or frequency of event at all. So I'm wondering how much explanation there is in that at the end of the graph. It shows that really whether you're at what is it, 30% or at 600%, you might get a big, huge crash anyway. I, I had done it last year. One of the first things I noticed, and the, the answer to the decision was Yes, it was a bad time but the assets held by banks divided by GDP, which was low. So insofar as the bank assets put the flow, so the GDP was and that's so you don't see much of it. But it's a good question. And, but what I really wanted to know is the way that I've read some of your graphs, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of conditional on having some big banks, it's good to require them to hold a lot of capital reserves. But it wasn't clear what the benefit of having a few big banks is. And just Could you just read the graphs the other way and say, well, this tells us we should have small banks? Yes, well, that would be another way out of it, but I thought if I were to write a paper that was... <laughs> We were to write a paper that suggested something so draconian it might undercut such credibility as we had, because I, I, I can see the point, but, but it's, it, it, and it's, it's not necessarily fair to suggest that small banks often serve different purposes from big banks, and the big banks can do things that it wouldn't be reasonable for a small bank to do. Um, and I can, I can see that. You presumably use a big bank, I use a big bank, I'd to use a big bank in the States. And if we were trying to go through a tiny bank, I suspect it would be more complicated, but I don't know. Taking the longer term perspective as an ecologist, I'm wondering if the evolving banking ecosystem over time, and the way it's gone through some mass extinction events, 
is a more efficient way towards achieving a mere banking system overall, looking at how ecosystems have evolved over time and gone through mass extinction events and then function to help to allow even more biodiversity to evolve over time. Whether we're actually achieving a better banking system over time because of these mass extinction events. It's a very good question, but remember, first of all, it's a bit different. The ecosystems, the, the, the issue, and I think it's still a live issue, is asking the same it's in the nature of evolutionary processes to create new niches. And so that's making things bigger. But on the other hand, as you do that, you make the system more fragile. Um, so it must be given that most ecosystems are not all that fragile, and often very complex. Um, it's a quest that's still ongoing to ask what are the special circumstances that help reconcile those two things. So you would turn that then for banks to say these big banks do have a place in the small things, and that's the question which, which maybe the answer is well, they just don't do that. But that's the way it is. It's not, it's not, it's not clearly how it got there. There must be books about how it got that way. Um, but the question of how you regulate them, well, I think that is fairly clear. You just require them to be not really bigger banks, but have even bigger capital reserves. That will go a long way in stabilising it and withhold from the kind of guarantees about what we do, we'll pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, just to follow up on that and deal with the other comments. Um, having large banks having a larger proportion of capital reserve is almost like a tax on the land, which is very good for the small banks. The small banks are like getting tax breaks, the bigger banks have a slightly larger tax burden, which I think is probably good for the, for the banking system because a lot of innovation actually comes from small banks. And so I think you know, the revolution is probably, probably the most aggressive way. I'm surprised that more of them that, that, has, that has been put to place more on the ground. So, and then as far as why you don't see see something on this graph uh, at the late 20s, early 30s, what we have here that the graph shows is artificial wealth um, in that growth period created by compounding and very, very complicated variables. So the question is how to make those changes. 
Obviously, uh, if you try to make changes to the financial system, there's certain vested interests who will try and put the system back. So in a sense, there's this unhelpful resilience, this inertia in the system. And so how do we go about making those changes? Given, I mean, society functions well to a degree. If you make a change, there's a certain risk that you'll lose your civilization. But actually, we need to make step changes. So what's your perspective on whether how we go about those, those changes? Well, I, I basically, I think... I'm going to repeat myself a bit, because I, I think the way to fix it is to try and make sure that you keep a closer eye on leverage, you keep a closer eye on capital reserves, and you keep that closer eye in relation to the size and activity level of of the thing you're looking at. And you do not uh, offer a sort of blanket guarantee that you can do foolish things and the government will step in and compensate for them. And ideally, if you if you could, you get if you begin with Northern Rock. That was an interesting example of an extraordinarily useful bank. It was set up by Matt Ridley's father. Um, they had coal mines and stuff, and it did. It was a building society. It uh, helped local football teams and all sorts of social things. And then. Um, father died, Matt became the chairman, Matt thought he should do what everybody else has done and get some hot shot to take it to the casino and it went belly up. So you also, it would help if there were in some sense some oversight of the banking system as a whole to make sure that the people who were in charge of the bank are people who actually knew something about banking. Which Matt didn't. I mean, Matt's a good person. He's not a, not a bad person, but he's an evolutionary biologist who writes good textbooks. And uh, I guess he thought he was doing the right thing for the bank because uh, everybody else was making money. In some sense, that, that, but that's not something one would have. I wouldn't have the guts to write that down as a recommendation because you know it would cause too much agitation. <laughs> but if you did, on the other hand, have regulations on how much you could lend and so on and how much leverage you could use, that probably would have meant Northern Rock would have been okay. Even if it was not led by the best people. Last question. Um, I'm a uh, Catholic priest and I'm a 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 COD4, this new regulation coming in about countercyclical uh, capital reserves, macroprudential policy, all these things. But one of the problems I think with, with capital reserves is that unless everybody's using cash, which there isn't enough cash, your reserves values are dodges. So if you have you know, systemic collapse, the value of your reserves will be affected by that. Where do you go? So I suppose if you had large banks having to have large capital reserves, would that you know make that more of a fragile point maybe in the system? Right? The other so the thing I showed about the effects of confidence, that really I showed that because even everybody in the lines of the side of the and somebody goes down and kind of takes everybody in the region. 
risk associated with that too. Don't put it up. Their value is not fixed. And the, uh, the other thing was that uh, when we were talking about uh, complications, the more complicated the system is, the more fragile it is, and we need to be able to think about shadow banking because that's an area that we all work with and it's hugely complicated. Uh, for regulators to understand what people are doing, there's all kinds of financial innovations and every vehicle is different and it's all written there. And, and the more regulatory arbitrage they get, the more regulators make the banking system, the more it moves into the shadows. Uh, you know, this is a, a challenge for regulators. How do we, how do you regulate without, and then there's the competition between countries, you know, Europe and the US, if we regulate a lot here, they will all go over to the US. And you know, vice versa, there's this kind of international problem. I was just wondering whether Paul's on that. Yeah. I think, uh, as far as regulation goes, um, regulation defines the next the next border that, um, that people are going to try to get around. Mm -hmm. right? And so, whatever regulations you put out there kind of define the next set of problems. But the best thing to do is to try to make the regulations as simple as possible. Simple as being the regulations. The more complicated you make them, the easier it will be for the Thanks, bro.